All right, so we have just come through the climax of these first couple of chapters. And it was Christmas, right? So the, here the Messiah has been born, Jesus Christ. And we've seen how this ordinary circumstance, after ordinary circumstance, you know, two peasants having a baby, laying this baby in a feeding trough, shepherds involved. But then we also saw the, the, the angelic worship and proclamation to the shepherds. Uh, as well. But today we're going to start moving forward a little bit in the life of Jesus. We're going to cover his circumcision, which was done at eight days after birth, and we're also going to talk about his dedication, which was around 40 days of age. And these events are going to serve as another confirmation of the coming of the Messiah. We, we've seen tons of confirmation already from prophecies, a- angelic prophecies. We've just seen just miraculous things happen. Um, but we're going to see even more confirmation as a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna confirmed Christ's coming. So let's go ahead and read this full scripture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. Join me as we read God's word. It'll be up on the screen as well if you need it. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when, when the parents brought, the child, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was, just, or what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer, or worshiping with fasting and prayer day, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, this wonderful scripture. I'm so excited to, to get into Luke further. Um, you know, we've, we've, worked so hard to get to to Christmas, to the birth of the Messiah, which was amazing. But God, <laughs> praise, praise you, that's not where it ended. You know, if, if all this would have just been for a baby to be born and nothing else happened after that, no other prophecies of the 300 plus prophecies of the Old Testament, if nothing else was fulfilled, it wouldn't be that great of a story. It wouldn't be that great of an account. It wouldn't be that great of a thing for us because it would really mean not a lot. It would just be, oh, that's great. You sent your son to earth, but Lord, we know that's not where it stopped. And as we continue through Luke, we're going to see more and more how his life, the life of Jesus Christ, is pointing to the cross. And so, God, help us to, to see that confirmation of the coming of the Messiah today as we see this baby Jesus in a couple of different 
uh, situations here, and, and we see what you're doing and the prophecies that are already coming about this wonderful child that would take away the sins of the world. Lord, preach through me. May it be your words and not mine, as Brother Jim has already, pr- already prayed. And God, we thank you and praise you and help us to dedicate this new year to you. Help us to be getting closer to you and to making, mu- making much of you. We love you, God. Amen. So today we're going to see three distinct facts that, that point to this confirmation of the Messiah. And in the first is, we can confirm that the Messiah has come because of his physical presence. Because of his physical presence. I'm going to reread verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here we see that naming again at the circumcision. Again, this was kind of different than, than older Old Testament things. But now we're seeing that, that, that probably because of, of Abram going to Abraham, the Jewish tradition had kind of changed when kids were named, especially boys, at the day of their circumcision. We know the, John the Baptist was named at his circumcision. We just saw a few weeks ago, and now we're seeing Jesus named at his circumcision. Obviously, both of their names were given by Gabriel way beforehand, and were known by God before the foundation of the world uh, as Jesus was there. Um, And it's important to see that we're going to repeatedly see throughout this scripture today and throughout even the next couple of weeks that Joseph and Mary are righteous before God, uh, that that they are dedicated followers of the Lord and they follow the Jewish law. And we see the first thing, they're following the Jewish law regarding circumcision here. Circumcision was supposed to happen day eight of life, and we see them follow that. And then we're also going to see in a moment them following the laws of purification as well. (coughs) So we see that these two peasants were righteous before God. They, they followed God's command to name him Jesus, which is what God had told them through the angel Gabriel. Uh, they, they followed, Joseph followed God's command by taking Mary as his wife, even though this baby wasn't his. He knew that he was going to suffer reproach. The people, you know, that could be a whole sermon to think about what Joseph experienced throughout this as well, and the hatred, the other people, the shame and reproach, and a, and a very uh, righteous, as far as by law, they, they tried to do all the right things, and they were very judgmental even though we'll find out as we go through Luke, they weren't really righteous. It was more pseudo-righteousness. But, but in a shame culture, it was a very difficult situation for him at that point. And then we see that they're also righteous for governmental authorities. Is What happened? Why did they have the Christ child in Bethlehem? They were following Caesar Augustus and what he had told them. They traveled some 85 miles together uh, to get to Bethlehem in order to do that. And so God has chosen a solid couple to raise his holy son. Then we come to verses 22 through 24. Let's read them again to remind ourselves. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what, the, what, what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two, or two young pigeons. And so readers today, especially people that just read the New Testament more than the Old Testament, they're going to miss a lot that is in between the lines here as we move forward. So we find in Leviticus chapter 12, if you want to read about it, the laws of purification. And what this happened, a woman would be unclean for the first seven days after having a male child. And, and after that, she would be considered clean day eight, which was the day of the circumcision. So she was able to go to that. But then there was a, a, a purification that needed to happen around day 40 of the, after 40 days after the birth of that child. They would count that eighth day and moving to day 40, and she would be considered somewhat unclean, have to go and purify herself. If it was a female child, it would be 80, uh, 80 days. You kind of can see that in, in Leviticus 12. And so the sacrifice uh, was, was, supposed to be a, was supposed to be a lamb, 
if you read. That was the, the chosen sacrifice, obviously, to point toward the, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we see that, this messianic prophecy, even kind of embedded here. Uh, back in Leviticus 12, he is the Lamb, and so this Lamb would be sacrificed to purify this woman who has just had a baby. And so Jesus Christ purifies us. Uh, he, he cleanses us from our sins. So it was really to look forward to that. But there was an exception. And so we see here where is, there's no lamb mentioned in the scripture. Well, where, where is that? Well, there, there was something for peasants, for poor people, for people who couldn't afford a lamb, they were able to bring two birds, turtle doves or, or pigeons. And so that's what we see mentioned here. And so, so we can see that they couldn't afford the lamb. They, they, were, they were a poor people. The, the people raising the Son of God can't afford a lamb to sacrifice for purification for themselves, and yet this lamb would sacrifice himself for their purification. How, how beautiful is that? And we also see one other thing inferred here. In Matthew uh, 2.11, we see the wise men bring gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, we can be pretty confident that your nativity set just got blown up because Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are pretty costly things. It would have actually really provided a lot for them at that point. They could have afforded a lamb with those three gifts. And so we're at day 40. Well, no wise men yet. I'm sorry to mess up here. You need to put them a little, a little further out. They, they still had a little ways to go even by day 40. Um, then we're kind of looking at that. Sorry to mess up your Christmas decorations. Um, so, and if we move forward, we're also going to see that there's a dedication of the Lord here for firstborn. A lot of commentators miss this when they're looking. They're like, well, I don't see in the law of purification, there's no dedication here, but we see in Exodus 22, verses 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And so here, God required the firstborn sons of Israel to be dedicated to him, dedicated to his service. And how beautiful was this dedication to the Lord? God's one and only son is being dedicated to God. The, the God made flesh is being brought to the temple to be dedicated. And we're going to get to that, actually, as we move forward now, which is our second point. We can confirm that the Messiah has come because of his sacrificial saving, his sacrificial saving. I'm going to read verses 25 through 27 as we kind of move forward again here. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And so the Holy Spirit, we've seen the Holy Spirit working over and over again. We're only on chapter 2 here, and I mean, you could that's the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit at work. We know that God is three in one, three persons, one God. God the Father, we've seen him at work. God the Son, we've seen him begotten. He, obviously, he is before all creation. He has been for all, for, for all time. We see in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning, right? So forever. But he was begotten here in this. And then we see the Holy Spirit working to bring all of this out through different men and women. How, how amazing is that? And so this man, Simeon, is filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been revealed, had revealed to him that he would not die until the Messiah was born. I mean, what a promise. Can, can you imagine living your life with that kind of promise? You're coming to the end of your life and being like, God, I mean, I've been waiting on this for a while. We can, we can assume by that word waiting that he uses in the Greek that it's, he waited for a while. It wasn't just something that, oh, he's told one day it happens the next. He'd been waiting for this promise to come to fruition. 
And could, could you imagine living your whole life just looking forward to that, that consolation, that salvation that was coming uh, for, for Israel? And that, so who exactly was Simeon? You know, we, we haven't heard about Simeon so far, so who exactly was this guy? And we're going to get to that in a moment. We're going to explore that a little bit. But I think as we read Luke's gospel and we come to all these different people that play certain roles in the gospel, in the, in, in the, the account of Jesus' coming and Jesus' life as he has disciples, I pray that we, that we understand that Simeon, he's not the main subject in this interaction. Jesus Christ is. And we're going to see that throughout Luke's gospel. You know, we saw John mentioned a little bit, and then John just kind of disappears. You know, and, and then we're going to see different people mentioned, and then they just kind of disappear. They fall off onto the side because what is most important is Jesus Christ. And I think our lives, well, I know our lives, should look the same way. If we look at our lives, we should be like Simeon. You know, we're, we're a vapor. We're a mist. We see that in James 4.14. We're, we're here for a moment, and then we pass away. Then we're gone. The only thing that matters is how we fit into God's story, God's account, his glory. So how we fit into that is what matters. We see that for Simeon. We have no idea what happened for the first however many years of his life. We're going to see that with Anna as well. We only know a couple of things about her. But what we do know is how he fits into Christ's life. We see how he brings glory to, to God. And so church, the, the pages of our lives can be filled with things that last or erased when that trumpet blasts. When, when Christ comes, when, when, he, when he returns, our deeds will be weighed and measured based on how they glorify Christ. How, did we do it for ourselves or did we do it for the, for the Lord? And, and they will be, those deeds that are done for ourselves, they're done for the wrong motives, they're going to be burned up. We'll have no reward for that, but those things that are done for Christ, they will last. And it reminds me of C.T. Studd's beautiful poem that says this. Here's one of the stanzas of this poem. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So Stud bases this verse on 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So brothers and sisters, I pray that our lives look like this. I think this is a great New Year's idea uh, for us. So most of us will have some resolutions. Many of us, at least, will have a resolution, whether it's one, whether it's a whole list of ten, wh whatever it is, we're going to think of things that we, we want to do over the next year, something we want to do better, something we want to do more, something we don't want to do. All those kind of kinds of things, we'll, we'll, we'll make resolutions, and we'll make the, okay, I want to do this. My friends, as you make those resolutions, many of those resolutions, in America at least, they're temporary. They, they won't last. And even if you did do the resolution, even if you made it through, uh, eternally speaking, it's not going to make a huge difference. And I'm not saying it's not good to diet and exercise or to say, I'm not going to eat this anymore. I'm going to do this. You know, we do need to care for our bodies, which is the temple of God. I, I get that. I get that. But, but when you really think about what you're going to resolve to do in 2023, just know what, what, what's done for Christ will last, but everything else will pass. And so, so just as, as, you, as you spend that time, spend much less time on the carnal reality that we live in here, the, the, the flesh, the things that, that will not have any eternal significance, and spend a lot more time on your spirit. Uh, spend a lot more time on the spirit, the Holy Spirit, letting him work in you and make you more like him. Spend a lot more time in his word and in prayer, and, and in make that be your resolution 
that you are closer to God at the end of 2023. That you'd be a whole lot better to be closer to God at the end of 2023 than to be closer to fitting into a pair of pants. I'll just say that. I'm not saying it's bad that I never but but may we make that our number one. So many of us can be so focused on things that just are going to burn up. And we see that in our culture all the time. Just things that are going to burn up and, and may we focus on that. So who is who was Simeon? What does it matter? It matters is who is Christ, but th- that's what our lives should look like. But as we move forward, I'll go ahead and answer a little bit of what we know about Simeon here. And so what we're given in the scripture here is that Simeon is revealed to us as devout and righteous. And these two words, if you look at the Greek word for righteous, it's dikaios, meaning that he is upright. He is just and fair. He is right before God because he is right before his fellow man. And he's also devout, and this word devout is uh, evlabes, uh, meaning that he is God-fearing and reverent. This word refers to his right, right relationship directly with God. And so this Holy Spirit, righteous, uh, Holy Spirit-filled, righteous, devout man is waiting for something. And uh, we, we've alluded to it already, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the salvation of Israel is what that means. And upon saying this, he brings out in a hymn of praise, and this hymn of praise is called the Nunc Dementis, which is uh, derived from the first two words. If you're reading a Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, it would be Nunc, de, nunc Dementis, which means uh, now Lord. Uh, so if you were looking, we, we see ours says Lord now, but, but now Lord would be in the Latin is how it's written. And so let's go ahead and reread his hymn that he, that he uh, says here, his prophecy. And he says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So first off, when, I, when you're reading this, and sometimes, you know, we get kind of like this super spiritual mindset to where we think these people aren't like actual people that we're reading about. And so we're like, you know, we, we dehumanize them. They're like, okay, Mary... You know, we just see like, these Catholic views of Mary, how she, you know, she's never sinned, she never had a, like, this, this dude that she doesn't know just took her 40-day-old 40, 40, uh, baby, her newborn baby, and just sweeps him up. Like, first off, you got to think she's kind of like Mama Bear a little bit there, like, who's this dude and what's he doing with my kid? But it doesn't take very long that she sees God is with him, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I just, I, I love just how we just ignore the fact that he just scoops him up in his arms. I mean, you know, that's not necessarily something that, stranger just doesn't come take your baby. I, uh, for you that are moms, you're probably like, man, how to give him one of those. He wouldn't have taken my baby. You know, that's, that's not, not happening. But then he starts off with his hymn of praise, and he praises God for what? For keeping his promise. We've talked about that multiple times already, that God is a God who keeps his promises. He cannot lie. Everything that he promises comes to fruition. And he had had, had it revealed that he would not die until he saw the Messiah born and here he is just with a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing he can go home and he can rest in peace. He can, he can give up his soul to the Lord because he knows that he has seen that. We have to see Simeon's humility here, too. Something else we learned about him in this, and we've missed this in, the, in, the, in most English versions. And it, it'll usually say servant uh, is, is what we see in the ESV, and some will maybe say bond servant, but it really means slave. It's, it's doulos is, is the word there. And this is a term of, of subjection, a bondservant. And this is the same term that we see of the Apostle Paul. He starts off almost every one of his letters saying, I, I'm the Apostle Paul, a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. And, and this, this term is a term of humility and subjection to God. It's saying, I'm all yours. And, and we, say that we, we see that we are bought with a price. We're no longer ours. And so 
Here, Simeon even sees that. And it was during this prophecy of Simeon that we get the most direct revelation that salvation is not only for Israel, but is for the Gentiles. We are the Gentiles, my friends. Praise the Lord for, for this very fact that, that Christ came for all of us. It says, and it even goes in to say, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the root word for this word revelation is what? Reveal. And so what we see here is that salvation is going to be revealed to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. We can be saved because of the salvation that Christ provided for us. And note that Christ is also called a glory for his people Israel. And you're like, well, how did that work out? And Israel's glorified by Christ because, and he, or he's the glory of Israel, maybe is the way to put that, maybe more properly, is because now we're seeing what God's been working on since the beginning, since the fall, really even before the fall, God knew everything that was going to happen, been working to protect this people group, this people group of, of Israel uh, that, that came from Abraham, you know, Isaac, going all the way down to Israel, going to Judah, going down to David, all throughout the ages, God has protected this people group that's been taken into captivity here and, and conquered here, and yet they've continued to persist for one reason and one reason alone, for the glory of God. And so he is the glory of Israel. Uh, and so so, so how, how amazing is that? They, they are blessed as a people by God because of the coming Messiah. But we need to see this more clearly as we move forward that just being an Israelite didn't mean they were going to be blessed by the Messiah. Many Israelites were actually cursed because of the Messiah because they refused to follow him. And so let's move forward in verse 33, verse 33 and 34. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, watch this, this change. We're so happy about salvation that now we're going to see the first glimpse of maybe a problem coming. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So those who oppose Christ's coming will find themselves opposed by Christ, as Paul did on his road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. As he saw, he was kicking against the goads in some versions we see that, that, that he was fighting against the work of Christ. And he, what happens? He gets blinded on the road to Damascus. Other religious leaders opposing Christ, they're going to seem like they're victorious throughout parts of this account that Luke writes. They're going to seem like, oh, they, they're the ones in power. They're the ones that are, that are dominating Christ or telling him what he needs to do and they end up finally crucifying him. But they will find themselves wanting when they get to eternity and Christ stands upon them in judgment. And this opposi opposition continues today. There's the, there are many in, the, in our world today that oppose Christ and everything that he stands for. And this will lead to their fall, eternally speaking. Although Simeon doesn't mention Christ as the capstone, uh, he really is alluding to the stone scriptures that we see. And I'm going to read three of them here from the Old Testament that probably informed Simeon's prophecy here. Isaiah 8, 14 and, and 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Chapter 28, 16 in Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So these three scriptures lead us to the imagery that Christ is bringing to vision. You know, we, Christ 
does unite us who are believers, and that is beautiful, that, that you see people from all races, nations, tribes, tongues can be united around Christ because the Holy Spirit indwells us all. We see in Revelation, like all the nations, people from all the nations will worship God. I mean, how beautiful is that? But Christ also comes to bring division. And these verses speak of Christ being rejected, yet being the cornerstone. The cornerstone being the, if when you set that cornerstone, every other part of the building is in relation to that cornerstone, that he is vital. They speak of Christ being a rock of stumbling, means that, that, that those who are opposing him, he is the cause of their fall. And they speak of him being the foundational stone, meaning that he is Im- immovable and sure. And all this adds up to our understanding that those who are in Christ stand on a firm foundation. We are on the rock of ages, the, the, the prince of peace, the almighty God. This rock never shifts or moves. Uh, some, some refer to him as the unmoved mover. He, he cannot be moved. He, he is dependable and constant. Yet for those who reject this stone, terror and eternal judgment and hell befall, will befall them. That is a very difficult thing. And, but but we, we hear from Jesus' own lips as he walks this earth in Matthew 21. 43 through 44, as he addresses the religious leaders of his day. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be what? Broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. My friends, I pray that you are not going to be crushed by this capstone, by this cornerstone, by Jesus Christ. There's only one way to keep from being crushed or broken by Christ, and that's by repenting of your sins and humbling yourself before the one who took your sins on that rugged tree, who rose three days later, is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. We should fear his judgment, and that's what this is speaking of. This is speaking of the judgment of God. This is speaking of hell. This is, this is speaking of things we don't like to talk about. This is speaking of Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, which we've mentioned before. Jesus just let us know there is a serious penalty for opposing him, for standing in opposition to the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Almighty God. His mighty hand will crush you. But our next verse gives us even more insight into why we should follow this wonderful servant, suffering servant that we're going to see later. In Luke 2.35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Speaking to, he kind of changes and starts talking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he kind of lets them know that, hey, the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. Meaning, he's going to, just like we saw in his account with the religious leaders and how he talked about being the, 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 the stone that's going to crush others, we see that Christ is going to be the litmus test for where people are with God, as Daryl Bach infers in his commentary. He will expose the true hearts of the religious leaders and their true deeds will become known to all as they seek to crucify him afterwards. But Mary's going to suffer as well. And we kind of just see this here. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Can you think of, as a mother, any worse thing that you could ever experience than watching your, one, your, your, your oldest son, your firstborn son, suffer through a brutal death that way? She watched him be beaten to where he was marred beyond all appearance. She watched him be crucified with nails in his wrists and in his feet. A crown of thorns be placed upon him, mocked and spit on and beaten. She had to see that. I mean, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
This is our, our first glimpse of the cross that we see in the book of Luke. We, we see that for us, there is salvation to come. We have so much rejoicing to do that, that he would die for the sins of the entire world so that we may stand righteous before God and his imputed righteousness given to us so that we are without sin, that he gave us, as Todd Friel often says, he gave us his righteousness and we give him our rap sheet. How, how beautiful is that very thing. But my friends, it also is a horribly heinous thing as well when we look at what Christ went through. That, that the evil of this world, that, that those who opposed Christ crucified him, and that he willingly let them do it. I mean, how beautiful is that? So yes, we should fear God. Yes, he will crush us. He will send us to hell if we oppose him. But that's not the reason that we come to him. We, we should definitely respond somewhat because of that. You know, I, we, we, I hear a lot of people talk about old preachers and how they just preached, you know, about condemnation and, and that people were going to go to hell. And that's, that is very true, and we need to preach that. We don't preach that enough in today's churches, that there is a true hell, that there is no way out. It is forever. It's eternal, that you burn for all eternity, that there's no hope, that, that there's no purgatory. That's not something in the Bible. There's no second chance. You can't pray for people who have, went, who have passed away. It's not going to make a difference. That's very true. We need to preach that. We need to preach it well. But it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Yes, we should fear God reverentially. But how can we not respond positively to someone who would take that gruesome death on the cross, that would come from the glory, the highest of highs, to be born in the lowest of lows and laid in a feeding trough as a baby, to live a sinless life for us on our behalf, and hang on a cross willingly, having the power to call down angels to just pull him off there, being able to strike down people with the word of his mouth. I mean, if you remember, when they come to arrest him, he says, I am he, and what happens to everyone around him? Boom. They fall on their backs. They're, 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 they fall right to the ground because he is the great I am. He is God, and he, he's God made flesh, and yet he willingly offers himself for us. How can we not respond in faith to someone who's laid their life down to save us. How amazing is that? And finally, we can confirm that the Messiah has come because of his realized redemption. His realized redemption. Let's reread this last few verses here. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we've just been discussing how we can confirm that the Messiah has come. We, we've seen his physical presence through his earthly circumcision and his dedication to the Lord, as we saw with Simeon. That we saw his future sacrificial saving, uh, as Simeon talked about the cross that was to come. And now we're going to see his realized redemption. And we see Anna, she comes into the picture. And again, we're not given a whole lot about Anna. But we're given that she was from the tribe of Asher. And for those of you who maybe know a little bit of Israel's history, there's, you know, two, two or there's a northern, uh, uh, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went into exile 722 to the Assyrians, whereas the southern kingdom kind of lasts till about 586 if we look back. But this, this northern kingdom was thought to make, a lot of scholars were like, well, they kind of got dispersed so much that they were not known anymore, but we do see that they are. And this, this, this lost tribe is not lost at all. It's John MacArthur, a search of his commentary. 
She was of the tribe of Asher, of the northern kingdom. And Anna lived, had lived almost her entire life as a widow. So we're told that, that her husband died seven years after she was married. I mean, how, how sad is that? She gets married. Seven years later, her husband passes away. We're not told whether she was blessed with any children or not. But she's a widow, and, and my, my, my assumption here, because she has dedicated her life to God and been in the temple day and night, that she probably is without child. And now we don't know if she's 84 years old or if she's been a widow for 84 years old. That would make her 105 probably, or somewhere in that era. Uh, area. We're, we're not told. Scholars kind of debate over what, what that is. But we know that she's dedicated her whole life to the Lord for praying and interceding for the people of Israel. It says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying day and night. I mean, one can only imagine how many times she prayed for this Messiah. You know, Lord, we're under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Uh, we're, and obviously, she would even see they're under the tyranny of sin, as there's so much corruption in Israel and their religious leaders. And what is her first response to being in the Christ child presence? She begins to thank God. And our first response to God should always be thanks and praise as well. Whenever we see him reveal something to us, when anything happens in our lives, we should be giving thanks. We talked about that just a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And after thanking God, as we always should, any time that God does something, even when, when we think it's not going that well, we still thank God because we have salvation. We can always be thankful to God. But she thanks God, and then she, she, she tells the people of who this child is. She reveals to them that he is the realized redemption of all the world. How amazing. And she, she's, she tells them that he's the realized redemption of Israel. But we know, as Simeon just, just let us know, that he's the realized redemption for all the world. As we come to a close, we see that Christ is our redeemer. And we've talked about that before that Christ has bought us back from, from sin and death. He's purchased us with his blood. He's ransomed us from the power of hell and sin. But as we mentioned earlier, this freedom for, from sin is not for everyone. It's for those who respond. Yes, it's universally offered to all without, it doesn't matter what race you are, what language you speak, where you live, how you were brought up. Jesus died for the world. He came and sa to save the world, but it is only those who respond to his drawing. As God draws you, if you don't know that you've responded, if you're like, well, you know, I've went to church, I've done this, I've done that, but I'm not sure that I've really responded. I'd love to talk to you after church and talk to you about what it means to truly put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to be born again, as Nicodemus asked Jesus in John 3, what it meant to be born again. Today we've seen this confirmation of the Messiah coming. We can be sure that he has come. We've seen his physical presence We've seen a sacrificial saving and his realized redemption that is to come. And we know the rest of this account. We know that this was not only confirmed by Anna and Simeon, but it was most of all confirmed in the cross. That the coming of the Messiah was, was confirmed with his physical death on the cross and three days later with his resurrection. And may we, like Anna and Simeon and all those that were there, like the shepherds as well, respond with thankfulness and praise to God for such a wonderful gift. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for coming to this earth, this sin-ridden earth, and with, with a people that, that are obstinate, for, with, for a people that are bent on rebellion. We are those people. We are those people that did not deserve it. We didn't deserve salvation. 
We didn't deserve you to come and save us. Lord, we're, we're Gentiles. We, we're outsiders here. We, we had no part of this original plan. We, we know that you thought of us, and we thank you for that, but we know that Israel was your chosen people, and so, so we were outcasts, but God, you brought us in behind the Holy of Holies. You brought us into the most holy place to, to see you, God, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Now there is, there is no condemnation for those who, who are in Christ Jesus, that, that we can be considered righteous before you because of what you did on the cross. How, how, how you could take a, an unclean people, uh, people that weren't even able to come anywhere near the temple. We couldn't even come in the temple. We, we couldn't offer sacrifices. We couldn't be a part of that. But now we can go to our great high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but has been tempted to try in every way, yet without sin, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Lord, thank you. And I pray that this church, that each one of us here, that we do those things, that we put our faith and trust in you, and that we don't take for granted the, the blessing that's been bestowed upon us through the cross, through your sacrificial death. God, be with each one of us and help us to share that with others, that, that wonderful news of the gospel, and to live it out. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. And Happy New Year to everyone here, and I pray that we, we make much of you, God. And may this year be dedicated to you. Amen.